Welcome to another episode of I Am Nano. Putting the I in I Am Nano, I'm your host, Irfani. And I'm your other host, putting the M, Monica. And today, as part of our Nano Life series, we have a special guest who will be sharing his experiences, advice, and opinions. Very excited to introduce Ross, who started out his learning journey doing Nano, then went on to do a master's in mathematics and statistics, and now is a software developer with a focus on back-end development. Now, you have been on such a journey, and I am really stoked to learn all about it. It's amazing how you went from one thing to the other. So to start off, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, Ross? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you got most of it there, but um, my name is Ross, as we have talked about here. Um, I am currently a software engineer, software developer. That, by the way, has a lot of contention in the industry. I call myself an engineer. Why not? <laughs> uh, I graduated from the University of Guelph in 2018, I believe, for my master's in mathematics there. And then that was preceded by nanoscience, my good old bachelor's in nanoscience there. I am an avid video game player, a coffee enthusiast, and like many good Canadians right now, I have taken upon myself to finally go out into the wild and learn how to camp properly. I used to do a lot of like camping with my parents and stuff like that, but now I'm going to actually do, you know, real camping, not camping in a car or anything like that. I want to go to the backcountry and things like that. So it's been pretty interesting learning all about it. That's me. A few days journey, a few days journey of camping. Basically, yeah. I'm going with wow. a few friends at the end of the month, so that'll be a lot of fun. I've been researching tents and all that sort of fun stuff. So we'll see how it goes. How to run it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, that's interesting because, like, if you do video games, you can't really do video games when you're out camping. So it's I know, like... right? Do I buy another console? <laughs> Just see me kind of pulling up, you know, on the hiking trail, 16 kilometers in, with a full like 40-inch TV on my back. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is carrying the canoe, but yeah, that's me. Wow. <laughs> well, to start off, what was the focus of your master's research? You said it was in mathematics and statistics, right? Did it have any relationship with what you did in undergrad in nanoscience? Um, long story short, no. Surprisingly, or not surprisingly. Um, so I'll kind of talk about what my master's research was, and then mm -hmm. we can kind of go from there, I guess. Uh, so the title of it was Exploration of a Non-Cooperative Dual Management Fishery Using a Socio-Ecological Model, which is just a bunch of words. <laughs> to be quite honest with you, it was effectively just a, not even a 180. It was completely unrelated to nanoscience. So it was a pretty interesting shift. It had a lot to do with mathematical models that kind of take in account kind of socio parameters and ecological parameters and economics and all sorts of fun things like that. The focus of it, though, was on fish, which is kind of fun. And not even like the chemistry of the lake or anything, but it was just quite literally on the fish that were being fished on Lake Huron. And we kind of wanted to model something that explained the interaction of two different managing bodies. And I can say this loosely because there is the Saugeen Ojibwe nation up there. And this is Bruce Peninsula, by the way. And the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, if I remember correctly. But those two kind of came together before my master's research and had kind of an agreement to fish this lake equally in some way, shape, or form, whatever it was agreed upon. 
And right before, basically, and this is kind of the reason for my research, is that agreement broke. It broke down, and they couldn't come to an agreement again for how they wanted to fish together on that lake. And we kind of wanted to model how that would look in different circumstances. And that is effectively the focus of it. Yeah, it was it was fairly interesting. I had to learn a lot, like quite a bit to actually understand what I was doing. And so that, that was a lot of fun, but nothing to do with science. I think if I were to say if it had anything to do with it, it would be any of the math we actually learned during the program. Differential equations. But yeah. Was that hard to make that shift from the nanoscience to, you know, doing a lot of math all of a sudden? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> it's my answer there. It was the math was fine to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the domain that was hard to kind of understand. Luckily, though, in my undergrad, I had actually picked up some research with who would then become my advisor, uh, Dr. Daniel Gillis there, uh, who was my co-advisor with Herb Coons. We could talk about that as well. That was very interesting to actually get into the program. But anyway, um, I had actually picked up some undergrad research with Daniel Gillis there with fish in mind and with the same sets of people that I'd actually be working with in my master's in the end. Um, and so I kind of had some exposure to the domain itself before I actually dove into it. Um, so that kind of made it a bit easier. Oh, that sounds really cool. I mean, it's a huge shift. At least it seems like for me, it's a huge shift from nanoscientists to math. Um, but I guess because it's in the same realm, you know how people say that science is just math talking. You know, it's like math, the language of science. So it's yeah. not as big of a jump from like, say, from nanosciences to, I don't know, anthropology, something in more in the social sciences realm. So yeah. that sounds really cool, though. Yeah. And all about the fishes and the environment. <laughs> I learned cool. so much about fish. It was great. Yeah. It turns out it is very important. Fish are cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Fish are friends, not food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, I'll tell you what is a jump, the fact that you went from the nano to the bath and now to becoming a programmer and engineer slash developer and all that backend programming stuff kind of glanced over that at least it's on your LinkedIn page. So yes. how did you make the how did, how did you make the jump becoming a programmer and what advice can you give to others? For sure. Um so this is kind of like a common theme so far in my life and my career, I guess. I've made a lot of leaps of faith. Uh, a little bit of confidence in myself, of course. Um, basically, throughout my master's, I had realized that I actually really enjoyed the pro programming aspect of it to come up with and you know simulate the model and what have you. I had to do a lot of programming based off of other people's work and then my own as well. And kind of fiddling with that and just understanding the logic and just the work that goes into it was probably the most fun I actually had with the thesis itself. Other than probably working with my two advisors, um, that is kind of what I wanted to keep doing. And I had a lot of programming friends as well, which kind of adds to, to the, the bonus here. And I kind of figured, you know, why not just pursue this as a career? Can I set myself up to do this? It took a bit of time. And the jump wasn't instant as well, right? I think coming out of university, I tried my best to orient myself to at least things that would potentially lead me to that role. So I got a little bit of advice from a friend as well about this. And it's like, if you're trying to become a programmer and you don't have the experience to just jump into the industry, try to take roles that are support oriented. A lot of them can potentially deal with programming problems, what have you. And it's just overall good for your like problem solving skills too. So I, that's what I did. I took literally a, uh, and they called it a tier one support role. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I still don't know what it means. I don't think it matters. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I took it at a, a company here in St. Catharines for a couple of months there and just brushed up on my communication skills, all of my problem solving skills. And the job itself wasn't too hard either. It's like literally helping out people 
set up Gmail on their iPhone, for example. Like oh. very basic problems and stuff like that. But you'd be surprised how many people call in with that problem. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> uh, how do I use 2FA and stuff like that? Um, which actually kind of broadened my, my perspectives too, in terms of, you know, what do people actually not know how to do still? From there, and like a lot of things, like coming into my master's as well, that was on an off chance. Like I came into that not knowing what I wanted to do. And my friend happened to just approach me one day being like, hey, uh, this advisor that you've been working with, do you want to also do a master's with? And I was like, why not? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Set me up. And then going along that pathway again, kind of rerouting it back to the programming aspect there, I went to work on work at a company named Method. And I actually happened upon that from a friend at a party who said, hey, my company's hiring in like a passing comment. And I was like, okay, I'll give you my resume. And, you know, a couple of months later, I was hired. Oh, that's um, cool. Awesome. Yeah. And I guess if that were to be my advice there is, you know, just take chances when you get them. If it's something that you want to do and you can you know, kind of set yourself up for something that will get you to where you want to be as well. I know it's not easy for everybody to just put themselves into positions like that. But, you know, like that first bigger job there at Method, which ended up being effectively what I'm doing now, just not as programming oriented. If I just hadn't, you know, just why not take the chance doing something a little bit extra there? Friends said they were hiring. Why not do it? I had no idea what they did. I just said, take my resume, see what you can do. And that kind of led me to where I am now. Um, it was pretty interesting, to be honest with you. It was really nice that it happened to actually align with kind of my plan as well. If I hadn't have gotten a job like that, I would have still pursued something like a coding boot camp or just learned on my own because there's a lot of resources out there to do that now. Right. <laughs> Uh, I have a question. Yeah, yeah. A follow-up question. So would you say that instead of, well, I mean, get some background and some experience by yourself, but then kind of just put yourself out there and then see what happens. Would you say that's for yeah. anyone who wants to be a programmer who doesn't have as extensive background in it? Is that the path that you would recommend? That is definitely the path I recommend for anyone who doesn't okay. have like any degree and this sort of stuff. I actually mm -hmm. worked with a few people now who don't have degrees in computer science or software engineering. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. And a lot of them came from the same thing. It's like, here's a random opportunity. I might as well take it, you know? Right. Uh, and just keep going down that line there. You're um, learning as you work on it. Basically, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, wow. Really inspiring for sure to like be able to jump into something so different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it can be intimidating for a lot of people. Oh, it's very, very intimidating, intimidating for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's scary, but, you know, once you get used to it, it ends up not being scary anymore, right? Yeah, um, that's true. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, talking about making this jump, right, would you say there are any personal challenges that you face when you were an nanoscience student that you could translate into, you know, moving on to these different pathways in your careers? That is a great question. For me there, I think a lot of things, maybe it just is bachelor woes anyway, but a lot of my time as an science student was a lot of fun. Um, but at the same time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. I had no idea where I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. And so trying to find myself was probably one of the biggest challenges I had just in nanoscience in general. At some points, you know, and quite a bit of lack of motivation. I did okay in some courses, terribly in others. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. Very relatable, yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if, you know, being able to develop like confidence in yourself is a very important aspect, either through, you know, 
help from friends and family. Like I personally had a lot of help from my family. They kept me going uh, even when I didn't want to and stuff like that. Uh, and it was it was very helpful for me. You know, like I have to thank my parents a lot for being able to, to help me push myself through stuff even when I didn't want to. Like I was actually going to drop out of nanoscience at one point. And I think it was in my third really? year. What? I went to the office. I signed the papers. I was like, OK, oh I just goodness. have to submit this to the office and I'm out. It's oh um, <laughs> pretty further along too. third year. Yeah, it was my third year. I don't know. I was just at a bad point in my life and I just didn't want to do this anymore. And I, I'm here now, but uh, if I didn't persevere and what have you, I, I don't know where I'd be now, right? I think though, if I were to pinpoint one like major challenge of the nano program specifically though, and I think I actually talked about this to some of the professors there as well, because I think they gathered feedback at some point from the students. At some point, um, I guess, yeah. I think so, yeah. I don't remember. Um, I, think, I think nano had a lot of like survey courses, I guess, right? So we did a, like a huge breadth of topics. And for me, I like focusing on things one at a time. And to be able to juggle all of that was a lot of work for, for me personally. So I, I took a reduced course load at the end of the day um, to kind of get through that. And it ended up being very helpful. And then kind of in line with that as well, when it came to just solving problems and the line of thought required for university as well, I didn't really learn how to do that until probably my, my master's program. Herb Koons there, Dr. Herb Koons, Herb Koons, sorry. I wish I had had him in my undergrad. He teaches a lot of the differential equations in the advanced calculus. He was on sabbatical at the time we were in our undergrad. Okay. But I, I had him for my, my master's courses, and he taught phenomenally. Uh, I wish I could put into words how well he taught, but he, he kind of unlocked like the ability to develop an intuition for something, and that was very important for me as well. And that kind of built up on uh, where I am now as well, just in terms of being able to solve problems and having confidence in doing so, even when I have no idea what I'm doing. Wow, that's that's really good advice. Ability to have an intuition, like that's definitely something that we don't talk about, but should be developed for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just a testament to how amazing of a professor and teacher he was. You know, I uh, could not say enough good things about him. He, uh, <laughs> his courses are phenomenal. If you ever have a chance, somehow to take a course with him, I think he has a few YouTube videos actually of the presentations. Right. He does a good oh. job explaining those as well. We'll have to link those so in the description. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. Oh, for sure. And like, thank you for sharing that it, the times can get tough, but you know, you either, and sometimes I think people feel like, oh, I have to do exactly what my friends are doing. Otherwise I'm not the same. And I like, I can't, I'm an imposter or something. I'm not, I don't know. That's how sometimes I feel. I don't know if you mm -hmm. felt the same way. And it's like, no, I can take a step back because those other people aren't me. So I need to do what's best for myself type thing yeah definitely um actually that, that pretty much hits the nail on the head at that point in my my third year there um a lot of people were switching into like a physics-based minor i think it was right and i was just struggling okay. in physics mm -hmm. um and that's kind of something i had to come to terms with i was like maybe this isn't for me you know what else can i do to kind of push myself through this but you know <laughs> still feel i have my own agency and all that, that that's a very good point Right. Yeah, for sure. I think it was also too, it was tough for me because I was comparing myself to all of you doing physics minors. And then I, I was the one that chose the chemistry minor in the right? end. Yeah. And I was like, nope, I'm not doing any more <laughs> physics. No, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it works out in the end for yeah, it does. different people. Yeah, for sure. Uh, anything to add to that for Fani? No, I just resonate with everything that you just said because I felt such an imposter before as well. I had a math minor actually, oh, and nice. I had, and I actually failed them because I just it didn't click with me. Yeah. I had to drop out of that. So I totally 
feel you. It's it's <laughs> it's very very relatable. For sure, yeah, it can get tough. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. I think it's good to talk about this stuff too because not everyone really talks about uh, you know just not doing the thing you set out to do originally. Yeah, right? it's easy to say like, oh yeah, we did this, we did this, but then you don't see all the behind the scenes, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, like from looking at your resume or CV, Ross, or like choices, I would have never guessed like you would have yeah, struggled with something, right? Like that. You made it. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that for sure. Like I would have been like, oh, this guy is just, everything's easy for him, you know? Yeah, yeah. I guess so that brings the following question. Looking back, would you still have gone to graduate school or your nanoscience undergrad and done anything differently? If <laughs> I've, I've thought about this question before, <laughs> if I could take all the knowledge that I have now and then go back and then have done it over, if that makes sense, I think I would have changed it. Okay. It's this is an interesting question to think about, right? Because everything that I did before and now has kind of led me to this point, right? So I've built all this, mm -hmm. this, this goodness up through having just done graduate school. Short answer, by the way, yes, I would still have done graduate school no matter what I was doing. I think it was a phenomenal experience, and it really prepares you to kind of take on tasks that are larger than you would want to effectively, right? Um, depending on your your advisor as well. I mean, some people have very tailored things. Other people have very open-ended problems. Um, either way, it prepares you for, for, for kind of either industry and, of course, research in a way that many other things can't, right? One thing that I might have done differently, though, is probably now that I have figured out that I actually enjoy programming and software development and all that fun stuff is gone back and done a minor in that and potentially had done a more programming-oriented master's is kind of something that's I would like to do in the future, maybe, maybe a PhD, you never know. Yeah, That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. If I ever get the time to <laughs> sure find a domain or, or a topic that, you know, actually applies to something that I enjoy, but yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But overall, definitely would have gone back and not much that I would have changed. Both of the programs that I did were phenomenal. And I really enjoyed the people that I worked with and all the, the friends I made. What made you decide to not pursue a PhD and just finish as a, as a master? That's a good question. That is a good question. Um, at the time, kind of going back to what I talked about for the, um, the thesis there itself, I had a lot of fun doing the programming aspect, but when it came to some more of the, the mathematical approaches and kind of the overall research and what have you, that mm -hmm. wasn't my bread and butter, to be quite honest. It was interesting. It was fun. I could get it done, um, but it, it just wasn't something that really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of figured, you know, if I pursued a, a PhD at this time, I would probably not be setting myself up for any sort of success. Right. I would would much rather go into industry, kind of figure out myself a bit more, which I ended up doing, which is great. And then seeing if I wanted to do something after the fact. Yeah, for PhD, you're dedicating like five to six years of your life. So you better know what you yeah. want to do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, investment. <laughs> it, it is a big investment, as you both know, right? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did, was not ready to put myself through that yet. Yeah. Oh, so I was going to add, I think in one of our, our previous interviews, um, so Dr. Bruno mentioned that the age range when you're doing PhD, if you're not that keen on it, well, you know, it's like um, you might be wasting your time because you don't want to waste the years of being 25 to 30, like high mental plasticity, like high, mm -hmm. like learning, like you're the sharpest probably that you'll be and you'll have time to, you know, yourself actually do what you want. So if you're not keen on doing like a very high end degree, you're just going to end up probably miserable, which is actually what happens to a lot 
of graduate mm -hmm. students, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. That's good to know. And yeah, that, that kind of, that adds up, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really good advice. I had never really thought about it in that way. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Anyways, go well, ahead, everybody. So what are you working on now? You said you're a software backend developer, right? I mean, you mentioned about the Gmail stuff before, but then how about right now? Oh, yeah. If you're um, allowed to divulge a little bit about what you're working yeah. on. Yeah. Our work's very murky about that, so I'll try my best to, like, <laughs> go through it without, um, I don't know. There's not much not much I can actually do. That would be would be bad anyway, so. Um, <laughs> okay, good. As I think about that now, I never really thought about that until now. But anyway, what I am working on now, so I've had to talk about this industry, by the way, um, not for people who don't, like, continuously learning, sadly. That is one facet of it that kind of needed to, if you want to be fed stuff constantly, this is a really good role for you. Mm -hmm. um, you have to learn a lot all the time and you have to keep up with a lot. And not to say that you can't do that only at your job, um, so long as it supports learning, which sounds kind of ridiculous, but some jobs, like especially like high corporate level things, um, you might be siphoned into a role that kind of does like a few tasks here and there. I'm not speaking from experience for that, but that's is what I've heard from others uh, in the industry there. Um, but at places like startups and, you know, new companies, more modern companies, I guess, not to say that modern and old are any better or worse, but more of the modern companies kind of embrace uh, learning, right? Because at the end of the day, it costs money to have people sit down and learn things, right? Mm -hmm. While they're also could be working on client work and stuff like that. So to actually answer the question, what I actually do... <laughs> Um, I work on the product delivery team, which is kind of meaningless unless you know what we deliver. So Can you I'll kind of take a step back and I'll say that I'm working for Tulip Retail. It's their full name there. Most people just refer to it as Tulip. And we deal with uh, high fashion industry individuals there. Uh, some wow. of our clients are like uh, Kate Spade, Coach, Chanel, Saks, wow. all those fun people. Wow. And what they're kind of looking to have is an experience, what they were before COVID. Uh, I can kind of talk about that as well. This wasn't my project, but uh, we had to pivot a bit as a company. Right. Um, but pre-COVID, a lot of the experience that these high-end fashion retailers wanted was, you know, kind of VIP tailored sort of things for each individual at their stores and kind of all along the purchasing process there. So Tulip produces applications or a platform that lets associates, so the people working in the store, kind of deal with the customers that they have on hand in a way that's a bit more fashioned to that person than other stores might. Uh, for example, you'll try to record information on, you know, what people's interests are, what their favorite stuff is, colors and all that sort of stuff like that. That's kind of the basic details and what have you. And then just provide them with information that lets them tailor experiences. Like mm -hmm. someone who's working at these stores might reach out to somebody um, who just recently purchased maybe a few months later being like, hey, I, I kind of found this handbag you might like. Do you want to, to see a few pictures of this? I can, you know, model it for you and stuff like that as well. If you want to take a look, we can set you up with, with a purchase here if you want to come into the store. Um, it goes very, very far through that as well. And one of the coolest apps, I think, I wish more stores had this actually, is an application called Runner. And all it does is it lets you know, uh, if you basically plant somebody in the back room and you contact them through this application and you say, hey, get this thing from the back room and they run out and bring it to you. That's it. Your, your associate who's dealing with the actual customer there doesn't actually have to go to the back room, come back out, you know, be like, oh, this isn't the right size. All that sort of fun stuff. Wow. Impressive. Um, so that's that's kind of tulip there. 
And so my team has to develop things such as uh, we call it like a customer sync or an integration that lets us effectively synchronize information across these different platforms. So, so right now I'm working on a larger client right now, we're upgrading them and we need to make sure that we can synchronize customers from our database with their database. Um, we also need to make sure that we can pull down their live inventory to our application as well, which is a lot of fun. And that, but uh, that's what I'm doing at work. And then outside of work, I do a lot of fun random projects. I guess if you were, uh, like I said before, you need to keep up in this industry, mm -hmm. uh, not, not too heavily. Like I said before, you don't need to do this. And you know, not everyone does do this as well. Like there are a lot of people who are successful here who don't actually have to go and do extra side projects. But coming in from a place where I wasn't a programmer, I, I feel the need at least right now to kind of continuously brush up until I don't know, maybe I'll never feel uh, you know adequate enough to, um, to say that I've learned enough to just work on my day job there. But um, I take on projects that kind of tailor myself towards places I wanna be in the future. A fun project we did, you know, that's what I can talk about as well. This is kind of in the past, but something that'll lead to, to the, the future there as well. Um, we have these things called hack days at our job. Uh, a few companies do this, more of the modern companies do this. And a hack day is just a, a thing where it helps your employees learn how to build something in one day and then also present it in under three minutes, I think it typically is. Um, I think that's very important uh, for someone's ability to learn and present because not everyone gets exposed to that sort of stuff. But anyway, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, we devised something and it was <laughs> this spawned out of just uh, necessity to just how people are feeling through, um, I don't know, the pandemic, what have you, and, you know, a day-to-day -day job, the grind, I guess. Um, we developed something called Pasta Surge. <laughs> what? Pasta Surge? <laughs> yes. Um, this hasn't been fully fleshed out, but, you know, there's enough there that we can say it's a product at the very least here, right? Okay, great. <laughs> well, great name. Uh, thank you. It's a phenomenal name. And I'll kind of talk about how that came to be as well. Uh, so this product was aimed at, and I'll caveat here, we as a company, Tulip, developed something that's either a platform or a piece of software as a service, right? Uh, that is the definition. You often see the term like SaaS thrown around. That's like software as a service, SaaS for short. Um, that's what that means. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we host stuff and we deliver it to you. We provide something as a service to you um, is typically how it is in SaaS as a service. And I happened upon a tweet from I think uh, a Twitter user named Bored Elon Musk of all people, not the actual Elon Musk, I wish, that'd be hilarious. Um, but all it said was SaaS as a service. And I thought that would be hilarious. So like being sassy, but as a service. So it's SaaS awesome. as a SaaS, it's amazing, right? <laughs> so we went about creating something. We asked a bunch of our friends to basically give us uh, the sassiest comments they possibly could for something called a code review process. Uh, this is a thing you just throw it up. It's like GitHub or GitLab. And people have to go through and they, they read through your code and they give you comments and what have you and try to give you something constructive at least to change the code if they need to or they just approve it. And so we thought, wouldn't it be funny if like we had a chatbot or something like that that just sassed you as soon as you submitted it? You know, it says something random like, I wish you had written better, you know? <laughs> this isn't meant to be mean. This is all tongue in cheek, right? But yeah. it, it, we had a lot of fun writing this. And the kind of end goal for me there at the very least, uh, we ended up making it and it was a lot of fun. And one of the things I wanted to try and bake into it, and this is like an aspirational thing for us as well, there was to take in some like machine learning sort of things. This is a domain I've been wanting to explore for so long now, and I just have never had the chance to really do it. Uh, so I found this random Python package uh, called TextGenRNN for the recurrent neural network there. 
um, and we just fed it in our um, our sassy comments. And we kind of developed something that could either sassy with the uh, real human comments or the robot comments. And the robot was not too good at generating comments, but I still think it was hilarious. And that's kind of where the name came from as well. At one point, we were feeding it random text, uh, both my, my colleague and I there. And for some reason, it kept getting stuck on spaghetti. It just kept spitting out things related to spaghetti. And at one point, it's like in 1984, something, something, something. And it just ended the sentence with pasta surge. And we just broke down <laughs> laughing for like a good half hour there, how ridiculous this thing was. Oh, <laughs> uh, the best comments that the, the, the neural network generated at the time, because we only ran this thing for like 10 minutes, I think. I think the best one in my mind it came up with was, your cat thinks your work is lame. And, and I thought that was beautiful. Oh my God. <laughs> you know what? That could be true, given how many people work from home. The cats right? are going to experience... Yeah. Your cat's the judging you. Working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is so funny. Great. It's hilarious. And how many programming languages time. would I need to know to do something like you? That's a great question. Um, probably at least two. Um, and so for a lot of people, uh, it, it's found that you need to at least be able to, you know, program in a language tailored to your industry. So we're, I'm in web development in this case. Um, and backend work is typically done with a subset of languages like PHP, for example. And then being able to query a database, which is more so along the lines of if you understand how to use R, for example, um, in your day-to-day -day if you're a researcher, anything along those lines, just being able to, to adequately gather, gather data out of things. Sometimes I need to debug things, and that requires me to go in and, you know, uh, why is this customer missing a country? Something like that, right? And being able to just get to that information is really helpful. But um, honestly, any modern web development language is probably good enough. And if I were to be more in depth with that, separating that out from the framework you're learning um, in programming or computer engineering, specifically web development and stuff like that, there is a lot of like frameworks. And these are kind of sets of things that people have created to make their jobs easier. Sometimes they make other people's jobs easier as well. Sometimes people base their whole companies on a framework. Um, a really popular one for front-end applications is called React. Being able to know those things is really handy, but also being able to know just the languages that are underlying it is probably more useful than anything you'll, you'll learn from just learning a framework, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. So React, uh, Angular, uh, there's a whole bunch of things like that. Those are all based off of JavaScript. Um, as a language there. And that would be the other language that I know, um, which is kind of what our team specifically works in. But yeah, probably one to two languages is all you really need. Um, wow. And just being good at it, you know, um, having confidence, building things with it, um, making sure that you can take it from, from A to B. If you want to be, and this is kind of a, like a misnomer, I think, in the industry, but if you want to be full stack, as they call it, um, you need to know both the front end and back end. And in my introduction, they read out that I'm a back end developer. So I deal primarily with things that talk to data stores and what have you, things that provide us data. I don't make things pretty. Uh, that's up to the front end people to do. Mm, I see. You can fill a lot of roles just by knowing one part of the, the stack, as they call it. Um, and so I went the route of back end. Well, that's what I'm it. surprised to hear that as long as you know two, you can kind of easily transfer your skills to a different language because i thought you would have to like learn every single one but then i guess there's a something transferable between the languages something similar uh yeah um, a lot of it's kind of like 
it's basically math, right? At the end of the day, <laughs> which is why this is actually an interesting transition point as well for, for the, the, the career I'm in now. But um, a lot of languages are built up with the same blocks of information, like control statements, if this, then that, um, right, being able right. to loop through things. And then mm -hmm. anything really on top of that is kind of not really, not necessarily not needed, but it, it's in addition to it, right? So if you can get good at the basics, then you've pretty much learned the language in my opinion. And from there, it's just kind of exploring things that are more tailored to the problems you're trying to solve. And sometimes that just requires you to read what the language can do, right? It's hard. What you're doing is very difficult. So, yeah. Sorry, I, I kind of did gloss that over. It's not easy, once again. But at the same time, you know, once you feel comfortable doing what you're doing, for sure, uh, I think it's very transferable, if, if that makes more sense. <laughs> And you're so fast at it. It's like one of those scenes in the movie when you're just like typing and typing. I mean, they're not probably as realistic, the ones that you see in the movie, but like, you know, it seems really cool that you're just typing all these code speaking in computer language. I will say it's not even that fast. Like I'll spend like maybe like when you're starting out and this is very, this is very interesting to me, right? Because uh, I thought like, how much do you really need to know? How much do you actually put into a day to get something done? And for a lot of people, like when you're first starting out, you're literally writing like one function in a day, maybe at best, mm -hmm. like that's your task, probably not even in a day, if it's a really hard thing to kind of understand. And then you kind of build who going back a bit intuition as to, you know, where this fits into the, the bigger picture and all that, all that sort of stuff. Right. So like, as you progress along in your development career and once again i'm still at the beginning of this but like as i've progressed at the very least there you kind of get a, a better understanding of all the, the building blocks there and the techniques that you need to use to to build software i wish i could be like one of those hacker scenes though wouldn't that be phenomenal you're just sitting at your computer literally for eight hours straight just like clacking away on a keyboard yeah like they do in the movies what are you yeah. telling me that's not true like, yeah. i wish that were true that'd be awesome <laughs> So moving on to our final couple of questions, I guess. What advice do you have for current and prospective graduate students? It's a big question. It is, and it's an interesting one. A, find an advisor if you haven't found one. That's a tough one. Um, I think, like, for me, it came to me. It fell on my lap, so I got really lucky with mine. And my friend happened to know my then would-be advisor, and was really good friends with him as well at the time, you know, put in a good word for me uh, to kind of land me where I was. From what I've read from a lot of people there as well, you need to, you know, kind of, as far as I understand, you need to find a, a topic that interests you. You need to find an advisor that you'll actually want to work with, right? And if you can put in the time to find somebody that will hopefully teach you in the way that you want to be taught, that'll benefit you the most as well, because there are different learning styles and, you know. And then I have a really concrete one. This one helped me so much as a grad student, and that was making sure that you set up your thesis, like literally the actual program that you're using <laughs> to write the thesis well before you even start writing. Um, <laughs> uh, like the template and everything? All the, yeah, the template and all that fun stuff. Uh, my, this, is, this is due to my advisor there as well. He's like, Ross, you have to do this or your life will be just terrible. Uh, when it comes to editing and stuff like that. So he's like, I ended up using like a, a latex compiler in this case, or LaTeX, depending on how you want to pronounce it there. He set me up with a reference database. I think I used Jabref. 
if I'm remembering correctly, just a way to store articles. You know, like you find this article online, I don't care if you read it or not, just throw it in here so you can reference it if you do, right? And then he set me up with a set of like packages or whatever for LaTeX there so that I could reference my references from that database wherever I wanted. It would like auto increment in my bibliography and it would never cause me issues when it came to moving paragraphs around if I needed to. Mm -hmm. That was really good advice because I had so much editing to do. And if I hadn't done that, uh, I don't even know if I would have completed my master's. <laughs> That's good advice for me, actually. I'm writing my thesis right now, so. Do it up. Yeah. Set up that uh, set up that thesis. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I think a lot of people get this one too. But uh, another good piece of advice that I get, and I do this at work as well, just write things down. Like write it down. You're reading it at the time. Write down what you know. We're taught this a lot in science, I think, but I, I feel like people disregard it sometimes. Yeah. Like taking good notes when you can is really important. You're never going to be able to remember what you're doing like a week later unless you read mm -hmm. again. In which case, you just wasted your own time. Mm -hmm. um, very important. I just write down like yeah. random words in my thesis, like this paragraph doesn't make any sense at the time, but you know, at least I know that it's there, right? right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It's a place from where you can work from, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. very important advice, actually. <laughs> That's very key. Yeah. I'm going to implement them while I'm writing my thesis. I'm a bit stressed out about thesis writer now, but it will definitely help me. <laughs> will you ever not be stressed out about it, right? You know? <laughs> I guess so. That's the question. That's the actual question. Yeah. Oh, I feel your yeah. pain. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man. Well, so since we are talking about nanoscience in our daily, well, not daily, but bi weekly podcast, let's link it to your current work with nanotechnology, your current work and nanotechnology. Where do you see the future of nanotech in the context of back end software developing? Which is a very strange question now that I'm saying it. But yeah, what do you think? It's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know that it would fit directly into my role, which is interesting, right? Because it's so different. Mm -hmm. uh, and just in terms of like how many levels away from this part of the, the scientific domain have we gotten that it wouldn't even be involved. But I think it's mostly the hardware, right? A lot of the time, at least I think so, mm -hmm. at the very least. Mm -hmm. um, if we were to group, for example, quantum computing into... Right. into nanoscience as well there. I think that kind of falls into the domain as well. I don't know that we'll get to a point in my life where we, we see everyday people kind of programming quantum computers. That would be very awesome. <laughs> That'd very be pretty awesome. sweet. Mm -hmm. uh, probably impossibly hard to comprehend, but uh, it'd be very sweet to, to kind of figure that one out. Um, but in terms of like involving programmers in a domain where nanoscience is involved, I think there's a lot. To probably explore there. I think actually someone we also went to university did something along those lines, actually. This yeah. doesn't necessarily make it like background research, but our background end programming, sorry. Uh, but they effectively tailored their thesis so that they developed a, I'm going to say machine learning model for lack of any better understanding here, to determine the best possible surface material to use uh, for whatever application they had. So they just fed it a bunch of chemical formulae, as I understood, and it kind of spit out things that they would experiment with to develop their surface, their surface materials there. And I think that's a good use of programming. Um, I think a lot of things in terms of science, what have you, is always going to kind of fall back onto um, statistics and, uh, and just machine learning, I guess, in this case. That's kind mm -hmm. of a throwaway term. There's so many things that fall under that domain, but uh, just the future of stats, really, I think, is where those things are going to blend together. 
uh, hold me, I guess, if we will. Tats are underrated is the only <laughs> comment. Sure like, I yeah. hated tats. And then now that you're actually like in the workforce, it's like, wow, you really need these statistics for actually. Oh, yeah. Right. It comes up yeah. everywhere. It drives everything. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> I think that is all the questions that we have. Thank you so much for answering them. Of course. Um, learning a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for letting us learn so much uh, from you, really. Like we covered a lot today and it was all very good oh, yeah. advice. And it is very inspiring to see how someone can grow from their undergrad and do what you have done. So, you know, you're a really great role model, if I may say. And thank you for coming on the show. Okay, so we'll link more information on Ross in the description. So anyone listening can feel free to contact him for more questions and advice on his journey, which is incredible. Being able to move from nanosciences to math and then programming, that's not easy. But here you are, you're doing everything and it's amazing. And it makes me believe that I can do it too sometime. I believe in you. <laughs> Thank you. It's good. <laughs> all right. All right, guys. Um, that is all the Nano for today. Take care. And stay curious.